Want to give me a mic check before we get started? <clears throat> Want to give me an actual mic check? Okay, here's my started? mic check. Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Claims, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste blow up at each other. Sit back, relax, enjoy yourself. You're being kidnapped by the Light FM. What? Uh, that's from the Mystery Science Theater movie. My name oh, is okay. Whitney, uh, and, and beyond making obscure references, I am also a film critic. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic for IGN. I write for other outlets when they'll have me. And Please with, have him. He's and, a great writer. Uh, thank you. That's sweet of you to say. And as with me, as always, is my very encouraging co-host. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a mm. film critic for The Rap and Bloody Disgusting. And wouldn't you know it, everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, we are here today, actually, a little early. Usually this is a Monday show, but this is a Sunday show this week. Why? Because we just couldn't resist. Also, the timing worked out. Also, the Oscars. <laughs> also, we like were up on our movies this week. We didn't have to catch up on anything? Yep. It's pretty good. I mean, there's, there's stuff I didn't see, but we mm. felt like we could actually do it. An episode mm. uh, this week on critically acclaimed. You're going to be reviewing the new releases Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, The Lodge, uh, and then we danced, and then we danced, and Redoubt, and Redoubt, and also Come to Daddy. Oh, and also Come to Daddy. Yeah. I know we're getting something. So a bunch of stuff. A bunch of films came out, um, and also uh, uh, I, I, just to, as a reminder, we have mm. our Oscars preview episode out now. It's not too late to listen to that, but the Oscars are tonight. <laughs> So we will be back with a full Oscars recap episode talking about everything that was great, everything that makes us worry about the downfall of civilization. Mm. We'll be there tomorrow that talking about all that. Movie-wise, movie-wise. Well, we, we, we can, we can it could be more than that. We'll also see. complain to you about a general mal- societal malaise, if you like, but that's not the central topic of our show. No. And it's just uh, something we whinge about on the side. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the other thing we have to talk about before we get into... Uh, our movie reviews is we lost Kirk Douglas this week. Kirk Douglas, who is 103 years old. Well done. Uh, I mean, listen, by any standard, 103 Mm. is a run. Mm. 103 is one hell of a run for anybody. Um, We've actually lost a few people uh, in the last couple of weeks who, uh, for a variety of reasons, we didn't get around to talking about. We lost the great Monty Python comedy legend Terry Jones. Rest in uh, peace, Terry Jones. If you've never seen Eric the Viking, I wouldn't be surprised, <laughs> but I'm a fan. It's a silly, weird, ambitious, um, angry little movie. Well, th- that's kind of what I appreciate about the Pythons. They they were, you know, really absurd and goofy and celebratory of laughter, but at their very hearts, incredibly bitter. Yep. Uh, th- their satire was actually very pointed, and a lot of their satire was actually of British television. Mm-hmm. But also is, British history, yeah, religious and, history, of European history. And uh, Terry Jones ended up being kind of the bedrock of that group. Uh, in that he directed their feature films, he did. Uh, Ray co-directed. Uh, he's credited as a, like uh, Monty Python. He, uh, Not Monty Python, but uh, uh, Holy, Holy Grail. He's he and Terry Gilliam were credited as co-directors on Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Uh, Terry Gilliam was more or less just the production designer. They've admitted to this. This yeah. is something they've said aloud. And, and Terry Jones is the one who is actually directing the scenes. Yeah. Uh, so and, 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 and even so, like even if you think to yourself, okay, well, Terry Gilliam would clearly had more of a hand in that mm-hmm. one. You look at Life of Brian. I would argue Life of Brian is easily the best Monty Python film. The, uh, yeah. 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 And it, um, is, it is laser sharp. 
It is yeah. hyper focused. It knows what it's, it's satirizing, what it's mad about, and, and it's, it's 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 got a better plot. Yeah, I was about to say it's a movie. You watch, you watch Holy Grail. Holy Grail is just like a, a trail of in, like funny scenes, and yeah. it, and it very pointedly doesn't end. It just sort like of it, cuts it off. It ends when they yeah. run out of money, basically. Uh, yeah, more or less. <laughs> it's like oh god, we can't do anything else. I've, we don't I've have got, any room left for squibs. <laughs> we just got all these costumes. Well, and, that's it. Well, and not so many costumes you can tell because in that last scene where it's like an army on a hillside, there's a lot of like really low angles and close ups. Mm-hmm. Of like three or four, uh, probably the same yards. guys, yeah. just wearing different helmets. Exactly. Yeah, um, it's really fun projecting that. I got to project Holy Grail a couple of times because it, it cuts off and then they just sort of play exit music. And the joke works better if you bring the lights up to full right away. Oh, there you it's go. Like cuts off, lights up, get out. Oh, that's great. <laughs> and you just let the music play. Some people will stay in their seats. Most people just go. Um, so we're huge fans of Terry uh, Jones. Any chance to talk mm-hmm. about him? We lost Orson Bean this week. Uh, 91 well. years old in a car accident. Oh my god, on Venice <laughs> Boulevard. Who was that? Yeah, uh, You monster, you took Bilbo Baggins yeah, from us. Orson Bean will always be my Bilbo Baggins. Um, I, I, I wasn't a huge fan of Peter Jackson's Hobbit movies, mm-hmm. but I grew up with the Rankin-Bass Hobbit movie, uh, the animated film, and... Uh, even when I was a very small child, somehow the vinyl soundtrack record of Ooh. that film made its way into our house, and I listened to that record more than any other when I was a young child. So I really got to know the really sappy song that's in that movie, The Greatest Adventure. Adventure. Yeah, that one. That, that movie is. Uh, that movie has this wonderful, like, sort of sad, epic song mm-hmm. about going on an adventure. It understands that the adventure was, in the end, you know, people died, so it wasn't actually a great adventure. Mm-hmm. But they have this big song at the beginning for all the credits, and then, like, when he's about to meet Smaug, uh-huh. he... They start There's playing it again. Repri- a little reprise. They of the reprise song, it, yeah. and I was like, "Are we still on the credits? How long is this movie?" <laughs> I remember the first time I saw it, thinking that, going, mm. "What?" No. But yeah, Orson Bean was the voice of Bilbo, and I will again, pound for pound, that mm. is a way better Hobbit movie. That's it gives you everything you need from the Hobbit. Mm. And nothing else. I mean, it, it, <laughs> that's it, what you need for that. Cut, they cut stuff the from the book, book, but nothing, not nothing much. you need. You know, there's like a bear man in the book that doesn't show up in the movie, but who cares? It's um, really not a thing. Yeah. Um, you I, make, and, and, was, and, I, and I said bear, there there was a bear man, and all the Tolkien fans are already writing angry of letters. Of course they are. Um, but Orson Bean, you might also remember him. He was uh, in Being John Malkovich. He was the guy who ran that little mm. weird company at the end, and you find out he was responsible for the Malkovich hole. Um, yeah, he was in inner space, and he just a really prolific. Always seemed like a really nice uh, actor, but yeah, uh, we need to talk about uh, his complicated legacy. But Kirk Douglas had you know left a huge impression on the film industry. Oh, well, I mean, Kirk Douglas. A lot of people are saying, "Oh, and it's the sort of the last gasp of old Hollywood." And Olivia De Havilland says, "Hey, <laughs> she was making movies before Kirk Douglas was, for and, Christ's sake." And she's still alive. She's still alive, and she's also over a she, hundred. She's she's one hundred and sixteen. I don't know how. Old I don't she know. Is. How, she's she's I'm up gonna look there. Up. Yeah. I'm going to look it up because we got to give Olivia her credit. Havilland is. We got to give her credit because holy yeah, crap, Kirk Douglas lived to be one hundred and three years old. Uh, uh, probably best known for films like The Bad and the Beautiful. He was in a wonderful film called Ace in the Hole. Olivia de Havilland's uh, also 100, 103. She turns 104 on July 1st. Happy birthday, Olivia de Havilland. Holy crap. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he still was, alive, oh, still litigious. Over, <laughs> over a century uh, year old, he... Over a century old, he uh, suffered a stroke at one point, but managed to continue acting thereafter. Mm-hmm. Uh 
He was in a film called Diamonds, where he played a man who had suffered a stroke and was going through a lot of the therapy. And so he was taking his condition with great humor. Uh, He always had a certain kind of... How to put it? He was a a rough diamond. He had a charm and a sparkle, but you could tell that he could be really tough at a moment's notice. Well, and a lot of that... Which made him good in, like, Mm. playing charming scoundrels, like in The Bad and the Beautiful, but also, uh, you know, this soldier in Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus. Yeah, there's something about Kirk Douglas that always Mm. struck me as a facade. And he was best when he played characters who had that. Like, when uh, his... I think the the best Kirk Douglas movie is also maybe the best Billy Wilder movie, Ace in the Hole. Mm-hmm. If you've never seen it, uh, Kirk Douglas plays a reporter who is looking for a big scoop, and there's um I think there's a mining disaster, but people are trapped yeah. in a mine, and he manipulates the disaster in such a way that he ex- makes it take longer to rescue those guys so they can get more headlines out of it, which is just the most monstrous yeah. thing ever. So a lot of it is just him. Trying to increase like publication sales while also threatening the lives of these guys while also mm-hmm. telling them he's their friend. It's a really bitter, angry movie mm-hmm. about the duplicitousness of charming people. And it's absolutely fantastic. Kirk Douglas is very well cast in it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people know Kirk Douglas from something like Spartacus, which is, of yeah. course, uh, uh, a, a handsome epic. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was brought onto that. Uh, I, I think at Kirk Douglas's behest because the original director left the production. So yeah, that's the only time Kubrick worked as a director for hire. Yeah, uh, he he did it as a favor because uh, Kirk Douglas was in Paths of Glory, which is also a great movie. Uh, and uh, yeah, he, he immediately took over the production, but he didn't get to develop it. So even Kubrick didn't consider that a Kubrick film. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is and, better and for it, having Kubrick's stamp on it. it that's it's for the least Kubrick of the Kubrick films. The only mm. scene that really sort of feels like Kubrick's is the one they cut. Yeah, the bathhouse scene between yeah. uh, um, o- Olivier and Tony Curtis, where mm. Olivier just says, yeah, I'm bi. Uh, and they couldn't do that in 1960. Uh, he was uh, in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Which I ne- I always thought he was miscast in that. I never bought him as a hero. I never bought him as that kind of hero. That kind of like plucky, like, ha um, I'll stop that squid hero. <laughs> yeah. Never, Even as a kid, I was yeah. just like, this feels wrong somehow. I don't I think, know why. I think he plays off really well against James Mason, who plays Captain Nemo in that version. So, he does, um, but I feel, like, I feel like James Mason and Peter Laurie are in a different movie. That's for sure. Yeah, um, uh, he was. Re- I think his best performance was playing uh, Van Gogh in *Lust for Life*. I've the, never the, seen the Vincent that. Minnelli film. I saw it on TV a long time ago. Um, yeah, um, he just sort of. Again, you can see the darkness constantly fighting its way out of Kirk Douglas' skin. Yeah. Uh, Even though he's sort of conventionally handsome, he had that very iconic chin uh, and has sort of movie star good looks. But yeah, you can always tell him that there's a lot of rage beneath that. And I feel like there's a really wonderful interplay between those two facades of him and Lust for Yeah, Well, I think think that's adequate. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, That's a pretty good legacy, I think, uh, for Kirk Douglas because he did things that were very good. A lot of people credit Kirk Douglas with helping to end the Hollywood blacklist Mm -hmm. when he hired Dalton Trumbo to not only write the movie Spartacus, 
but also gave him actual credit on Spartacus because Dalton Trumbo, yeah. like a lot of other blacklisted writers, they refused to name names when uh, the House on American Activities Committee said, tell us who the secret communists are in Hollywood who are mm. trying to brainwash all of Americans. And they're all just like, what the there's, hell are you talking about? Wait, no. There's, there's none of those That's people. not a yeah. thing. What are you talking about? And so all these people were not allowed to work in Hollywood, but they kept writing things in Hollywood because mm. they were brilliant. And Well, they needed work. And, that was their, their line. Yeah. Yeah. So like all of a sudden, there was this huge influx of B-movies that had way too good screenplays and nobody could explain it. <laughs> and also a fair number of Oscar-winning screenplays that went to people, like in The Bridge on the River Kwai, a guy who didn't speak English <laughs> won the Academy Award for that screenplay. I mean, he wrote the book. I mean, he gets credit for it, but like, still. Um, and Kirk Douglas was very adamant that Dalton Trumbo should get credit for writing Spartacus, and as a result, there stopped being so much of a stigma against hiring blacklisted writers, and that just kind of started to fade away. It's an ugly mm. chapter in Hollywood history, but that's about where it ended. Um, the thing with Kirk Douglas is it's easy to get wrapped up in the many great films he made, mm. in uh, the great moments in Hollywood history that he was a part of, and then overlooks the extremely ugly accusations about mm. him and uh, in particular about how he uh, uh, hmm. look up Kirk Douglas and Natalie Wood on Google I'm not going to ruin your day <laughs> I don't want to ruin your day more than I have to but mm. look it up it is one of the whispers heard most often in Hollywood uh, it's really very atrocious it's, it's, and you have to take that kind of allegation seriously and you, you, you gotta put an asterisk Next to Kirk Douglas's name. So, um, in any case, Kirk Douglas' impact on history, undeniable. Mm-hmm. Complicated legacy? Oh, you bet. <laughs> so, we do have to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. I, so, I, I just, for the record, though, for the sake of, he had a long career and he worked with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think if you see one Kirk Douglas movie, I think mm-hmm. it's Ace in the Hole. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, Ace in the Hole might... I would say The Bad and the Beautiful. Okay. Uh, the Bad and the Beautiful is the film where Kirk Douglas played... Um, a film producer and essentially gave everybody huge amounts of success at the expense of them all completely hating him because he was a horrible person. Yeah. And it wasn't like some sort of bold sacrifice of his character and I'll do these things just to make sure other people succeed. He wasn't sacrificing himself. He was just a dickhead. Yeah. And uh, the film is, it's told in a very Citizen Kane style where they, uh, a bunch of people are sort of flashing back of things they remember about him and like all of these little ways he sold out and threw them under the bus and yet yeah. they're all successful at the end of it, sort of coloring Hollywood as this place where success is kind of not very meaningful. I like that film a lot because it actually, um, like uh, Hail Caesar, the Coen Brothers movie, quotes a lot of real-life Hollywood stuff without actually involving the real-life people who are involved. Yeah, very much so. Um, uh, Val Luton actually gets a big shout-out in The Bad and the Beautiful uh, with uh, Cat People. There's a bit about, this, uh, which is more or less the making of Cat People and how they decided to shoot... Uh, no cats. Mm. They actually had some cat monsters, and they showed a guy in a cat monster suit. It was the it looked like pajamas. It was the goofiest looking thing. Yeah, no one will take it seriously if we show that. It's yeah. like what well, if if we film and the line of di- lines of dialogue is if we film a bunch of guys in cat suits. What are this, what's the audience going to see? A bunch of guys in cat suits. But what is everybody afraid of? And he flicks the lights off. The dark. So yeah, <laughs> a really good sort of Hollywood moment about if, a Hollywood. If only moment, Tom Hooper yeah. had listened. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> just cats, just a dull dark. <laughs> 
Okay, if it was like a black screen and they just animated it and you saw like just like eyes and teeth and claws in the dark, that would wear on the eyes after a while. I but maintain that would at least have a lot of people were just like, oh, there was no way to do cats. I maintain the way to make cats as a movie is every the whole movie is structured as every cat gets a song. There's almost no connective tissue. Give every, at a cabaret. No, not even CGI. Just give no. each cat to a different animator. A oh, different animation legend mm. does a di- or a different you know mm. promising animator, different animation studio. Everyone gets their own cat, different styles. Mm. You get stop motion, Leica does one, <laughs> Pixar does whoever, like mm. whoever you can get. Does, each does one segment yeah. for cats, or, or just it's, it's like Fantasia, or a different director. You can have them in suits. You can have C- you can have CGI yeah. if you yeah, want. Do but, one that way if but you st- want. But stage like, it as a cabaret. Have a, like a, a sign on an easel on a stage and have the, the name of the cat on there, mm. and they each get to do their number. And old Deuteronomy is in the audience, and that's the way you do that. Chorus line. Um, So anyway, Kirk Mm. Douglas, again, complicated legacy, Mm. but the history of it all. It's astounding. All right, we're going to move on to some movie reviews now. Uh, The biggest release of the weekend... Although not as big as I expected. Yeah. Uh, again, we're not box office pundits. I don't no. actually uh, care to speculate on why Birds of Prey isn't doing traditional superhero numbers. I have my theories. But what I can say is that if you missed Birds of Prey this weekend, mm-hmm. and I know Whitney doesn't quite agree with me on this, but mm-hmm. I mean, I, I stand by this. If you missed Birds of Prey this weekend, you missed probably the most entertaining comic book superhero movie in many years. (laughs) I, this movie completely gave me what I wanted from a movie, from a superhero movie. Mm. And I forgot I wanted it. Okay. Uh, Which is basically, imagine if Walter Hill, Paul Verhoeven and Rachel Talalay's like tank girl, Mm. like all teamed up and like made a movie. This is a movie that doesn't kind of, stem from Tim Burton's Batman or Richard Donner's Superman. This is a movie that stems from wild cult Mm. pulp cinema filled with really amazing action sequences and really fun characters. Stars Margot Robbie as Mm. Harley Quinn. We met her character in Suicide Squad. It's it's a sequel to Suicide Squad, but... in a very loose very, way. Very, it's the same way Shazam is a sequel to Justice League. You know? Yeah, you don't need to see Suicide Squad mm. to pick up on this movie. Uh, Harley Quinn, uh, most people know her as Joker's ex-girlfriend slash psychic. Uh, and at the beginning of this movie, she has just broken up with the Joker, and she is trying to find he, herself. He's dumped her. Well... Uh, yeah, anyway, that, that, the, the, relationship the, is, the relationship is ended. Uh, I, I, th- I think that's notable, though. Yeah. She, she has been hurt by him unduly, and this was after she essentially turned herself into the female Joker for him. Yep. Uh, she was kind of brainwashed by him, abused by him, yep. uh, tortured by him in a vat of chemicals. And she is in, she, and, and then on top of it all, he dumped her. And then he dumps her. He's yeah. like, uh, yeah, I, you did all of this for me, and now you're off. So... Um, she's trying to find herself. Yeah. She's in the. She's on the. She, she's not on the rebound. Like she's not looking to sleep around. But she is partying really, really hard. She's trying mm-hmm. to uh, put herself out there into the world, live her best life. Uh, and when the revelation comes to the rest of the world that she is no longer affiliated with the Joker and therefore no longer protected by the Joker, everyone she is ever wrong says, "Oh, good, we get to kill Harley Quinn." And so they try, and every t- and half the time, like every like every other scene for a while, suddenly gets interrupted by someone who tries to kill Harley Quinn, and there's like a freeze frame as she tries to remember what she did to piss them off. Um, 
Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch of other shenanigans going on with a villain called Black Mask. He's played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, his uh, henchman is Victor Zaz. He's played by Chris Messina. Uh, they are also supervillain crime bosses in Gotham City, and they are on the hunt for the Bertinelli Diamond. The Bertinelli Diamond is not only a really valuable diamond, but etched into the diamond are like, like bank accounts, like Swiss mm-hmm. bank accounts with tons of money. It's a big old MacGuffin. He gets that diamond. He has enough money to run all the crime in Gotham. He wants the diamond. Uh, a young pickpocket has stolen the diamond. And, and, Harley, eat, and eaten it. And eaten it. <laughs> and Black Mask says, if you don't get that diamond for me, Harley Quinn, I will kill you. And of mm. course, everyone else is trying to get the diamond for a million other reasons. And so we get, in addition to Harley Quinn and Black Mask, we meet the Black Canary, played by Journey Smollett uh, Bell? Journey Smollett Bell. Bell, yeah. yeah. Um, we get the Huntress, uh, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And, uh, no, she's, fu- she's the crossbow killer. Also the crossbow killer. <laughs> Everyone calls it, she, No one knows who she is because she keeps it's killing people with a crossbow. So no one, no one, she never leaves anyone alive to tell her them her actual mm-hmm. name. So they call her the crossbow killer and she gets really miffed when people say that like, to her face. No! The, the Huntress! She's hilarious in this movie. Uh, and she's, she's the funniest part of the movie. She's really hilarious in this movie. And uh, and then we get Rosie Perez as Renee Montoya, who was a very significant character uh, in Batman history as well. Much like Harley Quinn, she was originally created for the animated series. Although technically, because of the production schedule, the animated series, and how long it took to get like an episode to air, she technically premiered in the comics first. Oh, okay. But she was premiered and she was created Con- for the show. Conceived for the show, hit the comics, then was yeah. on the show. Uh, she was. Uh, she, she's she, queer in the comics, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, right. she didn't come out for a while, but yeah, she was. She was a person of color on a semi-regular basis in Batman mm-hmm. the Animated Series. That was noteworthy, and uh, and yeah, she was one of the first openly gay, prominent mm-hmm. characters in comics. She also became the question for a while, but I actually don't ever. I, I, I heard that oh, like, like she was like a superhero called The Question. Oh, you ever heard of The Question? No. The, the character Rorschach in Watchmen was mm. based off of another comics character called The Question. Okay. Uh, who was basically this conspiracy theorist, Randian type uh, hero. Oh, okay. um, So every character in The Watchmen is based off of characters from this other uh, superhero universe. Like hmm. um, Night Owl was based off the character of Blue Beetle. Oh, that's for example, there is Batman, but okay. No, well, Blue Beetle was based off of Batman, but no. you know, basically, Alan Moore, DC wouldn't let Alan Moore use the actual superheroes from this one superhero mm. universe that DC owned, so he just changed the names and the costumes. But Fair, otherwise, yeah. they're the same people. So basically, she became <coughs> the successor to the version of Rorschach we had in the DC universe. It's just All weird. Right. Um, but it's cool no, to see. None of that's in the movie. None <laughs> of that's in the movie. We had an analog for. Uh, uh, for that character, for Renee Montoya in The Dark Knight, but it wasn't the same character, which is very mm. similar. And I think the oh. reason why is because she ended up dying and they didn't want to kill off Renee Montoya because she's a beloved character. Uh, so, in any case, these are all awesome characters, most of whom have never been in a movie before. Huntress and Black oh. Canary have been in live action television and in they've the, all been the, in animation. The Birds of Break TV series. Uh. N- Renee Montoya wasn't, but the, Renee Montoya the, wasn't, the right. Huntress was. Yeah. And, and Huntress and Black Canary have also both been in mm. the more current TV series okay. of various DC yeah, we, characters. We, we reviewed uh, the Birds of Prey TV series on Cancel Too Soon, uh, which totally, bizarre totally bizarre. Totally bizarre. Very much of its time it as was, well. It took place in that period. It, it was released in that period after Batman and Robin, but before Batman Begins, mm-hmm. where no one knew what the future identity of Batman was going to be. So it so was like... This alternate history thing. And yeah. So it was kind of stuck in the Schumacher verse, but also trying mm-hmm. to be its own thing, it but was, it didn't want to 
to differentiate itself too much. It's like on the stale end of Lilith Fair and some really <laughs> bad costumes and spirited performances for really strange characters. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is what I like to call a poor bastard movie in which the mm. protagonist of the film mm. nothing goes right and they have to work their ass off in order to succeed at anything. And you'll notice this in everything from Evil Dead Two to Quick Change mm. and I or, or After Hours is another really good example as well. Mm. And I love this genre. Because there's yeah, you must love uncut gems. I do love uncut gems yeah. <laughs> because I, again, I think when the whole world is out to get you, everyone knows what that feels like, and when that is literalized in a mm. movie, there's something intensely exciting about that. And no matter who the protagonist is, even the protagonist is an asshole, like he is in uncut gems. Mm. A part of you is just like you can do it. But I want you to succeed. If you can succeed, then I, I can get through my day. So I, by I, all, for I hate love you, of but God, I want you to win. Yeah. for the love of God, Harley Quinn, get out of this and. I think that's a great thing. I think they've assembled a wonderful ensemble cast. Mm. The fight scenes are fucking awesome. And mm. um, anyway, I love this movie, and I know you don't, so I want to give uh, you a moment because I've been dominating the conversation. Oh well, it's it's fine because most of the people who have seen this movie share your view. Um, I I think there was something wrong in my theater. Oh, yeah? um, I think I wasn't hearing most of the sound effects. Uh, that might have been a big problem. What? It might have affected what it, I think. Maybe some of the channels were out because I noticed oh, this. No. Uh, there was a scene in the movie where uh, Ewan McGregor, just to sort of prove what a dickhead he is, forces a woman to dance naked on a tabletop. It's like yeah. you rip her dress off. Arr, I'm, I'm, I'm evil. I'm evil. And there was no music in that scene. It's like and dance, dance to the music. There is no music in that scene. Pardon. There is no music in that scene. Oh, well, then... <laughs> the whole point of that... I actually love that scene, not but, because it's... But they cut to a shot of, like, a band, and they're sort of, like, bobbing and playing their instruments, but there's still no music. So maybe that was am just I, a, a weird continuity am error. I, no, hold on. I'm trying to remember, yeah. actually, there was, maybe there was music in that scene. Yeah. The point with that scene, I think that scene's really noteworthy, is uh, it is a scene of a male villain humiliating yeah. a woman, and he's just doing it to make himself well, feel better. It's not part yeah. of the plot. No. But I, it's really noteworthy how Kathy Yan shoots that scene because doesn't look at her body at all never looks at the whole point is you look at her face Mm -hmm. and how horrified she is you look at how horrified everybody else is and you look at how weak that villain is for doing that Mm -hmm. it's not a lascivious film it is not a film that uses a scene Um, like that as an excuse for the audience to go well that that reads right away because we've seen uh, margot robey play this character in one other movie she was in suicide squad and Rather notably, that film directed by a man, she was dressed in essentially a pinup calendar outfit. Uh, mm-hmm. she, the shortest in, shorts imaginable, I mean, they're, they're, a tight t-shirt. It was essentially just panties and, yeah, a really yeah. tiny t-shirt. She was clearly wearing, like, a, a brassiere that was lifting her. She had... Um, and the way she was photographed was also really low. So, like, her, her torso and her breasts were kind of accentuated. Uh, you look at her in this film, she's wearing much more practical outfits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not filming her in such a way where her body is just sort of being looked at. And yeah. even her hair is something that's being done sort of more for practicality's sake than for this kind of fetishistic schoolgirl look. Um, Have we talked about the male gaze in well, we, uh, we talk about recently. it a lot. Yeah, well, um, just in case anyone needs a quick mm. primer, when we talk about the male gaze, G-A-Z-E, mm. um, it is a storytelling uh, device, if you will, or... Um, well, it's, it's I, an, I, an idea we, about um, well, ma- making art, especially films, where you can tell they were made for a male, uh, straight male audience. Well, not even just a straight uh, male audience, but like trying to adopt the eyes, the mm. actual look of the straight male audience. And when you look at exploitation cinema in particular, where anytime there is an excuse for female nudity, the camera luxuriates on that, mm. finds the 
right angle in order to make it look as pretty as possible, finds an angle that makes everything look really provocative when really another angle might not have done that. It's just people in a scene. Uh, or even just that you look at something like the Fast and Furious movies where every time they cut to just before a street race, there's a montage of butts. Yeah, the the, the, the booty girls that go to races. The implication I, I is, you like, and the audience, this is what you want to see. You are yeah, looking would, at a very masculine, sort of derogatory look at the female yeah, and, flesh. And, and yeah, it's Traditionally, these movies are shot by men, so they're sort of filming what they want to see, assuming that the audience also wants to see that, kind of ignoring half of the audience, which is female. Yeah, uh, and a lot of trying in the audience, which yeah. may be male and not interested in women. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's what we talk about when we talk about the male gaze. Yeah, uh, which and this I've, movie is completely free th- of. This was this, this was written by a woman. It was directed by a woman and uh, stars women. And uh, in fact, all of the women in this movie were wronged by men or male kind in some way. Uh, yeah. Whenever when it's brought up, uh, even Huntress, like they sort of give a, a skim pastor backstory at one point, and it's all about, all about how her. Her family was taken out by evil men, and how mm-hmm. she's kind of getting revenge. Yeah. Renee um, Montoya had her promotion yeah. stolen by her a-hole partner who took yeah, all the yeah. credit. Now he's her boss. Was, and I, I was a little bit wary of this film leading up to it because uh, it seemed to be kind of a mess. Like, I was afraid they... I couldn't see sort of what the what the master aesthetic was, and it felt like they were just sort of going for everything at once. And it was going to be like eight commercials mashed together. I just had lingering memories of Suicide Squad, more or less. No, 100%. Uh, That's exactly what Suicide Squad is. uh, And I'm, I'm watching Birds of Prey, and... I found myself disappointed that it wasn't chaotic. What? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm lo- watching Make this up film. your mind, man! I know, well, I'm watching this film, and it's, you know, it's really colorful, and there's all this crassness and violence, and I'm kind of... It feels weirdly restrained to me. It feels like... Uh, so it's a movie. It feels like uh, Har- uh, the Harley Quinn character, like Margot Robbie wasn't allowed to really just sort of be maniacal in a way I think she wanted to be. And I feel like there's just not... Like, the in- like they're... they're Saying that they're going to be insane, and I'm waiting for the wheels to come off. I'm waiting for just the the I, the, the roller coaster to explode, and it it all just sort of starts to channel down this very narrow path. So by the time I'm at the end, there's just there's no thrills or laughter see, anymore. I think I think you're expecting Harley Quinn to just be pure villainy, and I think that the not, character not, not villainy, just well, just energetic. Well, she is energetic. What the hell do you want? She does everything in this movie. She like breaks into like a police station with mm. a with a beanbag gun where everything's filled with sparkles and glitter. Mm. Like she's does I know, a lot in this I know, movie. I understand There's a scene are, in this movie where they shoot out cocaine say. and it gives her superpowers like Popeye. Like what do you want? I I, I understand these are weird. I I, I might have been in the bathroom for that scene, but uh, <laughs> what you missed I, uh, that scene? I I think. Uh, <laughs> My God. I I um. Yeah, I, I understand these are weird things to say about a film that is this sort of uh, crass, violent, and colorful, but it feels weirdly safe. It feels like a TV pilot to me. Mm. Uh, I, I think it was. It has a much lower budget than a lot of films of this type, and mm-hmm. it kind of shows on camera this time. But I, I like that, though. I like the mm. fact that this is a movie that is more about intimate fight scenes more in the John Wick kind of angle where mm-hmm. it's about the choreography more than it is about the giant locales or the giant even the giant stakes where there's no nuclear bomb here mm-hmm. you know there's no like we're gonna blow up all well, Gotham I, I, it's I just about need... whether we're gonna kill these characters and mm-hmm. as a result it feels smaller it feels like a crime movie yeah, it and, actually, and, and again, that's fine. And I like I like intimacy. I'm not talking about its scope. I'm talking about its eventual execution, where it, where you can sort of see the stitches 
it feels really shabby. I like the shabbiness yeah. though, because here's here's what no, not, but not 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 to not to its but to its detriment. I, I disagree. Yeah. I think I actually really really like the overall mm. aesthetic of this film, where it actually feels. Again, so many superhero movies either feel like they come from this ultra-stylized Tim Burton school Mm. or this ultra-vaunted Richard Donner school. And here is a film that feels like, what if Walter Hill's The Warriors was the biggest movie of the year it came out? Mm. If you've never seen The Warriors, it's awesome. It is about uh, this fictional version of New York where every gang has extremely colorful outfits and they're color coded and mm-hmm. they all look like supervillains. And there's some guy who's going to like align all the gangs so they can take over the whole city. That guy is assassinated, and this one group of uh, gang members called the Warriors, they're framed for it. Mm-hmm. And now every other colorful, crazy Batman villain looking gang in New York City wants to kill them. And it's just them fighting their way back home, like all across New York City. Mm-hmm. It's great, it's low budget. Um, if they was made today, it would certainly have more elaborate fight choreography than it has. But it is low budget, rough and tumble, full of personality. And I feel like in a universe where Walter Hill's The Warriors was mm-hmm. more popular than Tim Burton's Batman, this is the kind of superhero movie we'd get. <laughs> and I think it's an exciting world to be a part of. Right. This feels like, you know, you got you got some uh, Paul Verhoeven in here where there's just like a lot of kind of kind of unnecessary violence. This is a hard R rating. People get blown up like mm. pretty bad <laughs> in this film and I absolutely love it for that. Um but it's also got that wild wacky eccentricity of Tank Girl, which I don't think gets enough credit for at the very least being a great mm. cult film. It's 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 not a good film. No, it's uh, t- t- it's, uh, I wouldn't call it a bad film, but, but it's very shabby. I love it. Yeah, it's not a good film, but I love it. Um, I just because, and I think. I see why you would compare it to Tank Girl, but I think Margot Robbie is not uh, not doing what Laurie Petty did. I agree; she's doing mm. what Margot Robbie did. Mm. Bing. L- well, because uh, Tank Girl, Tank Girl's a different character, though. Tank no, Girl I, I is like this unbridled but, yeah. it of a character. Harley Quinn, actually, in this movie, it's about her learning to define herself. Mm. She's not as evil as the Joker is. She's also not a good person. She's yeah. a, she's at the best, she's chaotic neutral. Yeah. Uh, um. And on top of it all, one thing I like about this movie is they remember that Harley Quinn is smart. She has a PhD in psychology, <laughs> and she actually uses it throughout oh. the film. And you realize that she might act like a goofball, but that doesn't mean she's not paying attention and that doesn't mean she's not actually in control of her life or any given situations it's a good character i i don't want to give the impression that i'm dumping on this movie i don't think you are i think it's fine um i just i'm just surprised you like it more i I just i i think it might have been my screening i think it just might have been like if if Mm. you're not if i'm not getting all of the sound and a lot of the scenes felt really quiet and you know i'm then I'm not getting up, you know, getting a lot of the music or a lot of the sound that I think I might have otherwise. So it's, I'm probably seeing something a little more akin to a rough cut. I'm really frustrated that mm. I can't remember with specificity whether mm. there is no music in that scene you were talking about or if the music is just mm. very muted. And it m- might have been muted. It was dead I mean, silent. I mean, it definitely theater, wasn't though. like a fun dance number. Mm. It was. It was. It felt like everything slowed down and everything was just shit. Well, but the, one yeah. of the lines of dialogue was like, "But you, you keep on playing. You dance the music. There's music, and he." starts dancing and it's dead silent and I wasn't sure if that was a choice or if I had actually had like some sort of technical problem. I'm not going to lie there's a movie theater near us and I'm not going to call it out. I'm not going to name names but uh, there's a movie theater near us where I'm pretty sure they don't turn on the back channels of every theater. 
That's like really I've I've heard it. Uh-huh. Like I've been in a theater where it's just like I know this is like a big blockbuster thing, and I'm hearing nothing in the back. Like I know this is mm. at least a five point one surround film because mm. they all are now. <laughs> like it's weird. So it's possible you had a shitty presentation. It's, it's, which it's case entirely possible. And um, yeah. So also I saw a late night screening, and I just mm. wasn't in the mood to, to be up at that hour. So mm. I, all of these factors. Yeah, revisit may have... this at some point in the future. Please. Well, I, I feel please. like I, I feel like I need to. I feel yeah. like I need to because. I, I was sitting there not enjoying myself and yeah, wonder and wondering why I wasn't enjoying myself because this film seemed to be doing everything that it should be doing. Yeah. And just, it, it wasn't picking up for me and I don't, and I can't, the only thing I can point to why is that it did feel kind of orchestrated. It didn't mm-hmm. feel like a genuine type of enthused madness. It felt like yeah. a really safe kind of madness, and that, that was a little frustrating to me. Basically, uh, I'm, I'm just going to try to boil it down here. Mm-hmm. If you ever wanted to see the 1960s Batman show, but it's ultra-violent and people kill each other, mm-hmm. that's kind of this. Oh, <laughs> like, well. But directed by the Softy Brothers. Like, uh, <laughs> No, it's directed by Kathy Ann, and yeah, Kathy was, Ann yeah. directed the shit out of this movie. Mm-hmm. I love this movie. This movie doesn't feel like other movies, mm-hmm. uh, even though it clearly has you know, influences, but those influences are not other superhero movies. Mm. Um, I really do think this is the kind of, like, I was watching this movie with my wife, Michelle, who is a very tough critic on movies, especially pop movies. And she was watching this and she was just like, I wish I'd seen this movie in high school. Like, this is the movie I needed <laughs> in high school. Because it had the perspective, not only of women, but of mm. of LGBTQ plus women of no, I, uh, and I, I, and that I, part's great. And I, the, I loved what this did for uh, representation in this genre, which you know mm-hmm. women don't get to headline these movies. At least they haven't until now. Mm-hmm. And mean, if they, they do, like, they usually do under very specific parameters, yeah, where it looks like, like men are controlling how they're viewed. Um, you know, luckily we had uh, Captain Marvel, another another film I didn't like, but. Uh, I, I find uh, it, I find uh, it that, sort of mediocre in a lot of ways, but I liked it fine. I liked it fine. I liked the lead uh, Brie Larson a lot in that movie. She yeah. she um, even though her character doesn't have a lot to do, she's got a lot of attitude, and I think that was really mm-hmm. great. Um, but you know that was like what like the the nineteenth film in that series. I think it was. Yeah, I think yeah, it was. It was like, it was it was like 19th, yeah. somewhere between eighteen and twenty. 20th, it was yeah. yeah, it was like really late in that series where we finally got to have you know a woman star in one of no. these things, like in the lead role. And Fundamentally ridiculous. Here is a film uh, written and directed by women, stars women, and it's about women finding themselves at after being damaged by men. I think this is actually really positive. Yeah, there's a lot of good messaging. Uh, there's a lot of funny things in it. I like I said. I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead is hilarious. Oh, she's so funny. As, as she's essentially the, the straight woman I, in this movie. I, I and, love this uh, part where someone says she's got a bow and arrow. It's like I don't have a bow and arrow. I'm not twelve. I yeah. have a crossbow. <laughs> <laughs> so she's, I'm not twelve. <laughs> Yeah, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is great, and uh, yeah. she, she's the, it's definitely the highlight, at least for me. A lot of people have said um, her character is probably on the spectrum, and they found that very empowering, which I thought was no, really cool. It, that's not in the script, but it's yeah, not specifically it's, it's, in the script. That, but there's nothing that that's contradicts a, that's a fine it. read. Yeah, um, something that contradicts it. Uh, there's a character that has superpowers kind of unexpectedly, <laughs> like all of a sudden oh, they have superpowers. They mention it really briefly, but if you don't know the character, you don't know that's yeah. So bad. so that that kind of blindsided me a little bit. It's yeah, like okay, you know the bad guy. Okay, good, you have an in with the bad guy. So what kind of information are you going to provide? Oh, you have superpowers, TF. You know, yeah, I think I think a lot of people are going to go into the movie kind of knowing that from other versions of the character that they've seen. But oh, I think yeah. it's funny that you, it, that it just came out of nowhere for you. Mm. Um, I like that this movie. I mean, it has all those elements. Mm. 
But even if this movie didn't feel like such a trailblazer and it didn't feel like it was making a statement, it's just a good story. Mm. It's just a really fun, yeah. freewheeling story where anything can, will, and does happen. Mm. The action sequences are awesome. The characters are funny, but the situations that they're in really matter. Mm. Um, I just I had such I had a better time at this movie <laughs> than Jesus any blockbuster I've seen in a while. Mm. Like I think I think this might be like my favorite blockbuster type movie like just pure action studio driven you know yeah. fun product I don't think I've had this good a time at a blockbuster maybe since Mad Max Fury Road that's right. how much <laughs> I love this movie right. so I do hope if you haven't yeah, seen it you I, do see it because it deserves to be seen and it deserves to make some money so that people will throw more money at awesome stuff like this because mm. the headline isn't Birds of Prey only made whatever 40 million dollars 35 million dollars this weekend like 35 or something yeah, the headline it's... isn't Birds of Prey only made 35 million dollars the headline is millions of people missed one of the coolest movies in years hmm. that's the headline Whitney thought that's... it was okay <laughs> <laughs> Again, again, I I I know I'm the asshole here. I, I understand asshole. I'm the I actually, asshole. I respect here. you for being I, like I having feel, your own taste. Yeah, and and uh, to, to my credit, I don't tend to respond to a lot of action blockbusters, but I do, and they're good. Um, I mean, I I really love Shazam, for instance. You love Black Panther. Was, yeah, I like Black Panther. Yeah. Like, I'm not anti-blockbuster. It's no. just not. You're just not. You're just not. I, you're not an easy mark for. I, I, I tend. I tend to wiggle more for something like The Lighthouse, which is you know shot in black and white, and two men masturbate and kill each other. <laughs> like, that's that's my speed. <laughs> um, well, I'll tell you one yeah, thing. So, but but like I said, I feel like I feel like I'm missing something, and I feel yeah. like this was perhaps my detriment. Have there, I'm mm. actually going to... I think this is a fair question. Mm. I think we've all seen a film under less than ideal circumstances, not mm. liked it, and then seen it again and realized that we loved it. I'm not saying this is guaranteed to be that for you, but I, we've all been mm. there. I remember yeah, the first like, time I saw Sam Raimi's Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, I was supposed to go with a bunch of my friends from high school. I was like home for the weekend from like college, and we were all okay. going to go together. And they never came by to pick me up. And it turns out that it was 7 o'clock. They didn't call. And their argument was, we didn't want to wake your parents. And they didn't knock. Oh, or 7, ring the 7 a.m.? Yeah, no, or... p.m. And then they didn't ring the doorbell for the same reason. I'm like, you knew I was there. What did you? <laughs> they just barely stood around on my porch for five minutes and then hoping, left. Hoping you'd see them. I yeah. was in the back. I was talking to my mom. I thought you'd fucking, ah. So when I finally saw it like that weekend, just all by myself. I was just still kind of pissed. Okay, and then I saw it again, like a mm. couple of days later, with like some some actual friends, and mm. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, you know what? I really do love so much of this movie. So much of this movie is exactly <laughs> the Spider-Man movie I always mm. wanted. A lot of things are dated now, but at the time, there was nothing like it. Um, so that one was for me. Like, I just I. Yeah, would not. Yeah. I'm not even sure I would have given it a positive review on my first viewing, yeah. but well, and, and, it, then know, it became one of my favorite I'm, movies at the time. I'm, I'm a I'm a professional. I understand what when I'm seeing a movie, what's good about the movie and what my mood is. You know, yeah. a film isn't going to penetrate through my bad mood, uh, but I have to stay professional and understand what a film is doing effectively and when it's doing it well. And I'm, I'm looking at Birds of Prey, and I'm saying that I'm seeing a lot of things that it's doing right, but it's just not penetrating. And it could could have been my mood, but well, I don't know. Well, it's not a matter. Uh, I think sometimes it's a matter of mood. I think sometimes it's a matter of movies are trying to connect to us on an emotional level. Mm. 
we're not in the mood for what you're selling today. And that's yeah. a thing that can happen. And you're right. As professionals, we have a certain, you know, we're used to seeing movies at all times and all uh, under all conditions. Mm-hmm. And we do, I think, have like a hard reset button before the movie begins. And we try to just turn everything off and see what we got. But I also remember that right after my dad died, it was a little harsh on a couple of movies. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, could, I could see why. <laughs> I still stand by my reviews because Star Trek Into Darkness was a bad film. Mm-hmm. But maybe I would have been a little kinder if I'd seen it a year later and mm. it would have been like this is a really 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 bad Star Trek you guys rather than this is a bad Star Trek you guys <laughs> same thing different tone anyway um, so anyway, that's Birds of Prey we'll review it on our critically acclaimed scale when we're done uh, the next big release is a new horror film it's a film in the horror kind of genre and it is called The Lodge Whitney mm. what is The Lodge the Lodge, it's, it's a place where you stay in the snow. And it's uh, where... Yakety-schmackety-doo! And, well, and it's the, the Lodge in the Snow where a recently married young woman, played by Riley, Riley Keogh, is it? I'm actually not 100% sure uh, you pronounce Riley it. Riley Keough, maybe? Keough, I'm not sure. Uh, young actress, she has just married a recently divorced man uh, whose uh, wife we see in an opening scene actually commits suicide. And yeah. she is she committed suicide because he had moved on. She was so despondent that she took her own life. Mm-hmm. And now the two young children, uh, one of whom is a kid from it. Uh, yeah, one of the kids. Uh, from one it. of the kids from it. Uh, so a teenager. Are a, a, a teenager and his slightly younger sister are now seething in a little bit of suspicious resentment of this new, much younger wife that their dad has married. Yeah, and so uh, Richard Armitage go, plays... The, just to get, Richard, Armitage, yeah. Richard Armitage plays the dad. Mm-hmm. Lacey Silverstone plays their kid's uh, biological mother, who, mm-hmm. when she finds out her husband is remarrying, kills herself. And so the kids... That's the inciting incident. It's like yeah, yeah. the first five minutes first of the movie. First five minutes of the yeah. movie. It's the plot. And, uh, and the kids, rather understandably... I'm not saying it's fair or reasonable mm. or that they shouldn't see a therapist about this, but you can see how the kids would blame the new they, woman. They the blame, blame yeah, dad's new They clearly fiance. blame her, and, yeah. and she understands that she is seen as kind of an interloper. The kids also, this is established early on, have a little bit of information about the Riley Keogh character in that she was the lone survivor of this weird, ultra-Christian, Jonestown-like suicide cult. Yeah. And now she has that hanging over her. And, and we get they to don't see, trust like, her. On, they on they the, uh, think she might be a genuinely dangerous influence on the family. And and also, you know, this is just another reason for them to hate her. Uh, they go up to the lodge for Christmas, and because of some uh, orchestrated emergency, Dad has to leave the three of them alone in the lodge together. Um Incredibly awkward. It's incredibly awkward, and from there, things start to get really strange really fast. Uh, And Riley Keogh, who is dealing with the stress of her past, paired with the resentment she's feeling from these kids, paired with what might be a legitimate haunting of this lodge, because creepy, eerie sounds start to to happen. Things Mm -hmm. move around when she's not seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, They wake up one morning and things are missing from the house. Including, very pointedly, her her medication, and she's on a variety of anti-anxiety and Mm -hmm. maybe maybe even more important medications Mm -hmm. than that. And if you've ever had antidepressants or anti-anxiety mm. medication, you'll know that going off of that even for a couple of days can really start affecting your yeah, mental and, state. And 
time begins to sort of escape them, or at least escape Riley Keogh. She's not really sure how many days have passed, when she falls asleep, how long they've been sleeping. And it begins to feel after a while like they're in purgatory. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't take them too much longer after the audience has to figure out that they, are they dead? Yeah, they it's, might yeah, be they dead. Might they might actually might, be dead. Yeah. Uh, and there are other details that, that are added onto this besides. It's a bit um, twisty turning. We're yeah. not going to reveal the whole thing, obviously. Uh, this film, I think, deals very smartly with the way women are told to not feel. Mm. I think there's a, a this big... She is... Uh, the the Riley Keogh character is trying to deal with her own trauma and her own feelings and her own sort of internal emotional issues and her own mental illness, and she is... Told, put in this situation where she is forced essentially to quote put on the brave face mm-hmm. and be, and the, and be, be a the hero too. yeah be a mom be a hero be supportive mm-hmm. of this situation when really all of the family should be there to support her yeah and of course they're in no mood to support her because the kids blame her for the biggest tragedy that they've ever experienced and the dad's an ass he just leaves her alone with these mm-hmm. kids who he knows hate her. He yeah. knows they hate her. He, and he leaves her alone for two days thinking, oh, they'll bond and it'll be fine. I'm like, no, you're an idiot. He's completely insensitive. This is, this is a terrible yeah, idea, has, even if nothing even scary it's, happens. It's not like in Birds of Prey where we get to see sort of like the direct harm that the men are doing to the women. And here it's a lot more insidious where yeah. it's, just it's just about lack of you're, care. You're expected to be strong here. And he's just completely insensitive. And, and you look at the way that even mm. at the beginning of the movie, he tells Alicia Silverstone just really blithely, like mm. he invites her in, he makes coffee. It seems like they're finally going to have a decent conversation for the first time since they split up and then it's just oh by the way I want a divorce I'm marrying my new uh, girlfriend who's 20 years younger than me Yeah, and she's just like well go fuck yourself and then she <laughs> goes away and she's so hurt that uh. she kills herself in a really tragic scene Alicia Silverstone between this and the killing of a sacred deer is <laughs> carving out an interesting latent career niche for herself as wronged single moms that's fine she's great oh she's yeah. really good actually I think she's I always takes me a minute to recognize her sometimes because she's mm. playing characters unlike the characters she used to play and she's oh, really she, good at them she so was, it's really great I mean throughout the 90s she was pigeonholed as sort of like this this manic love interest she was in a mm. lot of romance films yeah, a lot of and, valley girl type roles yeah. and she's better an actor than that and she's I'm mm. glad she's getting I wish she got bigger roles but I'm glad she's getting more interesting roles yeah, yeah. I think that's really cool um I think Riley Keogh is the MVP here I think mm. uh she I, I, every, I haven't seen her in a lot of good movies, but she's always been really good in those movies. Okay. And I do think that she understands her character as a character of great complexity, mm. who is wrestling with a lot of very serious issues, who has wants and desires of her own, but is willing to make sacrifices, but also is incredibly fragile and more mm. so than she's willing to let mm. on. I think the problem with this movie for me mm. is... Um, is a sense of perspective. Mm-hmm. I think when you look at, for example, um, let's, let's look at, for example, The Shining. Okay. Uh, where <clears throat> it's much like The Lodge, it's a couple of people trapped in a house. It's a man, mm-hmm. a woman, and their son. Uh, the Shining knows when we're supposed to be scared for the kid. Okay. The Shining, like, if this kid is scared, that's the focus. If Wendy is scared, uh, Shelley Duvall's character, that's the focus. When... 
we're supposed to be scared for the kids because they're trapped at a house with this woman and the whole crux of the second act is maybe Riley Keogh is not to be trusted. Maybe mm. she's very dangerous. Maybe she's, you know, the minotaur in the maze that these kids are trapped in. She's this mm. woman who's destroyed her family and she has all this horrible baggage and she's starting to lose her sanity. Um, in that whole sequence where we should be like scared for the kids, we spend almost no time with the kids. It's all on her. Yeah. And then late in the film, when the perspective shifts and it becomes clearer, like, who has truly been wronged here, then we shift to the other people mm-hmm. or the other character or the other person or the other werewolf. And I'm going to tell you who we shift to. But we shift to the perspective of individual or individuals who I now have no sympathy for. Yeah. And as yeah. a result, it doesn't feel scary to me. It just feels kind of despicable. In well, a way that I, I just doesn't feel frightening. I'm, I actually mm. just got the impression that this movie is treating mental illness as sort of an exploitation cinema kind of boogeyman. I, I don't mm. like. I, I I got angry at it, and not well, like because I, it was scary, but because I thought it was just naive. I don't mind that kind of twist. I actually got a, a little like tiny distant taste of like films by William Castle and Herschel mm. Gordon Lewis sure. about these kind of maniacs trapped in a lodge, and we eventually sort of pull back the layer, like in, um, I'm not going to give away about anything about, uh, uh, House on Haunted Hill, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, there's, they peel back a layer and they reveal like what's real and what's not in that, in Mm. that scenario. Yeah. Castle did that a lot. But, and, but we stay with the, the perpetrators. We stay with the bad guys and we kind of get to see, oh wait, those guys are villains. And there's kind of a, a little bit of wicked fun to that. That's the same structure as the lodge, but everything is much more sad and and mm-hmm. and kind of dangerous in the lodge. It feels like there's actual stakes in something like the lodge. I watch a William Castle film. No, it's fine. Those it's, are G-rated films. You know, there's not a lot that's at stake. Even something like really kind of super violent, like Straight Jacket. There's uh, an element of camp, and you just yeah, a little yeah. bit of distance. No, I I think um I think the perfect uh, film to discuss in conjunction with mm. it is Good Night Mommy, which is made by the same filmmaker. Did you see Good Night Mommy? I didn't see Good Night Mommy. Good Night oh, Mommy. Wait, is this the one with the the Two, twins? Yeah, the twins. Yes, I did see Good okay, Night Mommy. Good Night Mommy is a great. I, I, I confused that with just Mommy, which Good I haven't Night, seen. Good Night Mommy is a great setup mm. uh, for a horror movie. I have mixed feelings on the movie itself, but I think it mostly works. Uh, it's about. Two identical twins. They're little boys. They're like seven, maybe eight. They're closer to eleven. But yeah, you think it's eleven? Yeah, they're, yeah. they're pretty young though, and mm. uh, they're they're living in this sort of isolated house. And their mother, who had gone to the hospital for something, mm-hmm. comes back and she's covered in bandages. And their mother isn't behaving like their mom, and they haven't seen her face since he came back mm. and these kids are concerned that their mother might not be their real mom <laughs> it might be a different person the movie thing, never yeah. leaves the perspective of those kids until the movie finally reveals its whole hand mm. and that's i think the wise move because if this because the kids end up doing things to protect themselves that if they're wrong they're the monsters mm-hmm. But we need to see it from their perspective so that we understand why this is scary. I don't think this movie ever understands who is at risk, who is the real threat here, who is actually the person who should have our sympathies. Mm -hmm. And as a result, it comes across as just mean-spirited and ugly, as though the filmmakers are just saying, well, the real problem is everyone's just trapped in a house with someone with mental illness, and you should never do that. And I'm watching this, and I'm like, fuck off. What the the fuck? She's trying her best. Even if she is the villain, she's trying her best. Like, 
I, Grunley Kale gives the mm. character so much sensitivity, and the movie wants to treat her as the potential villain for so long, whether or not she actually is the potential mm. villain, that in the second act, I'm just getting annoyed. And then when everything is finally revealed, everything just sort of shifts focus, mm. and now I'm more annoyed because you <laughs> act like I give a shit about this new thing that I'm actually just mad at. Mm. A part of me is just like, well, they should die! They're jerks! <laughs> a lot of horror movies have this moralistic element, and I think yeah, well, the moral we, compass of this movie is gross. Uh, well, the, I, I think... And, and not in a good taking, horror way, but gonna, in, like, in, in, say, in an take, unexamined way. Taking place in sort of a, a morally bankrupt universe is an acceptable place to set a horror movie. I agree, um, but I don't think that gives you... I, I think there is an ethical way to tell unethical stories. I think hmm. there is a way to... Tell stories about moral bankruptcy in which it doesn't feel like the movie is merely exploiting moral mm. bankruptcy because that's all it's got. Mm. And I think this movie walks that line and stumbles. And I, I don't care for it. I, I think it. No, I think it does walk the line. I think okay. it does it very well. I all think right. because if we're looking at this film from Riley Koch's perspective... She has never actually done anything outwardly villainous. She is kind of blameless in this scenario. Um, of course, you take into account her past, which she's trying to absolve herself of mm-hmm. and feels tremendous guilt about. And this is about somebody who who enters a scenario where the people around her are very deliberately, pointedly not caring about her plight. I agree. They're either ignorant or they are... You know, just too insensitive to notice, or they're deliberately pushing her. Mm-hmm. And so, when you see this as a person who is just sort of being pushed closer and closer to the edge and is already at risk, that makes for a lot of tension. See, it should. Mm. I, I agree with you that mm-hmm. it should. The problem is that Riley Kyogre is playing the character with so much sensitivity and I'm so much on her side that the first. I mean, the first act is just set up. The second act is where the horror really kicks in. Mm. That second act, the tension that the movie is trying to tell us uh-huh. is is underneath the surface is, will Riley Kyug snap? Yeah. And there's a lot of scenes where it looks like she might or she might hurt the kids. Mm. Or this might just be, this might be, hell, this might be people from her cult trying to well, find her again. Who the hell knows? And, and, you, can, and, like, and you can, t- and you know, there's there's some like v- pseudo supernatural thing going on. So yeah. maybe it's like the ghosts of her past coming back to haunt her. Uh, maybe. But, uh, but and, again. And, but we also, the, we, but we threw out all of that. We see how insensitive the kids are. They're never seen as victims in that se- series. But they are the people who, events. but they are the people who, if we buy into the premise that Riley Keogh is the mm. person who either directly or indirectly is bringing the threat into the family, then those are the kids whose safety in particular is at risk. Therefore, spending that entire act focusing on Riley Keogh's character Mm. diminishes them in such a way that I no longer am invested in their plight. Mm. I only care about Riley Keogh's plight, and the movie doesn't want me to trust her, but she's the only person I can trust because she's the only person whose perspective I'm getting right now. Mm. And I find that so misguided. Like I'm not I'm all I feel like I'm always looking in the wrong direction okay. in this movie, and it's always the direction that will make me care the least about what's happening. Wow! All right, <laughs> that's I, I find it frustrating. I, 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 just, I, I, I thought it was it. really moody and atmospheric, and, and okay. like I said at, at the beginning of the re- review, I think this is actually a very potent film. Uh, one of the directors is a woman about how uh, women are so frequently told to stop feeling and not be emotional, and I think this is about. Uh, what happens when that sensitivity breaks down Mm. and so I think this is actually a pretty clever film about misogyny and about the way uh, people treat young women 
when their feelings are ignored. I, I would agree to that to a point, but I don't like that the movie's ultimate takeaway is the reason... It feels like, it feels like the movie's saying the reason why we should care is because otherwise these people could kill us. Mm. And I find that very cynical. I'm fi- and I'm fine with that cynicism. I think cynicism. I don't think. Is, is I don't okay. think. It's, I don't think it's a very mature cynicism. I All think right. there are other more interesting takeaways we could have had right. rather than takes a, a serious conversation about sensitivity and mental health and just reducing it to a scare film about why mental illness is scary. That pissed me off, right. and it just it left me not attached to the film in a way that could, I could enjoy it. All right. Well, that, that that's a fair reaction. Yeah, I, and, and I, this is I, yours. Yeah. I get I get where you're coming from. I okay. want to, I respect that. I still think you're wrong about Birds of Prey, but <laughs> like, this like, one like I, I get. Said, I totally I get where you're coming from. I don't say this a lot, but I think I think I need to give uh, Birds of Prey another chance. Okay. I feel like th- th- this was like the first half of my review. When I watch it again, I'll give you the rest. That's of right. my review of Birds of Prey. Well, you, the other two movies, uh, two or three movies, three movies. There's other yeah, three, three movies, movies that we yeah. saw this week. I, I I didn't see them. You saw them, right. so take us through. Okay, uh, how about we talk about Come to Daddy? Yay! Come to Daddy is a film that was directed by Aunt Timpson, uh, who is the producer of some really wonderful cult films like The ABCs of Death and Turbo Kid and The Greasy Strangler. Uh, Those are interesting films. <laughs> the Greasy Strangler is amazing. The Greasy Strangler... I, it, it is I, I one of I, the most disgusting films of the last couple of years. I wish I liked it as much as I respect it. Uh, but just I for know, being totally balls I, to the like wall. My wife Michelle loves that movie, and I totally get <laughs> why. Because it's great. Um, I want I, to fill the world with grease. Turbo Kid is something that I think is a little better in concept than it is in execution, but still it's, pretty it, fun. It's a fun it's, it's basically, style exercise. It's basically yeah. post-apocalyptic you know, Road Warrior stuff, except the protagonist is like an adolescent kid who is adopting the persona of a character you read in a comic book. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, and ABCs of Death, like all of horror anthologies, is really hit or miss. Mm. But I really like that one because right. it's every director gets a different letter of an yeah. alphabet, but they only get a couple of minutes to make a movie. So it moves really quick. So even if there's one that doesn't that, that sucks, uh-huh. you've moved on to the next one in three minutes. Um, but yeah, this is directed by Ant Timpson. Uh, because of his producing record, you can know that this was going to be a little kooky. Uh, it's about a young man, played by Elijah Wood, who has decided to, to track down his estranged father, who he hasn't seen uh, or heard from in many, many years. He's been raised in relative uh, wealth and comfort by his single mom. Uh, he tracks down his dad, and his dad is living in a very, very remote, run-down, ramshackle house by the seaside, and is also the biggest alcoholic dickhead you could ever hope to meet. It's like, thanks. I don't know why I'd hope to meet that. Like, like uh, he, the, uh, at the beginning of the film, Elijah Wood opens the door and the guy just sort of looks at Elijah Wood. Who are you? He's like, <laughs> Your son, you invited me here. Oh my, oh, like you just realized that something happened. All right. Like, I remember, that, I remember and, writing that postcard. And, and, he, and he keeps on you know, cussing and cussing and insulting Elijah Wood. And he's like, what do you do? Well, I, I, do some music stuff and in order to sort of ingratiate himself with his dad he makes up a few like white lies it's like oh yeah and I, I got to talk to Elton John at a party once oh yeah I know Elton John I have his number let me call him and and of course Elijah Wood has to renege and say okay I didn't really meet Elijah Wood so now Elton John or El- excuse me Elijah Wood Elijah <laughs> Wood has met Elijah Wood <laughs> hasn't met Elton John uh, so Elijah Wood is now a, a, a liar and a simp and just this weakling in the eyes of this alcoholic monster. They hate each other, and there's nothing they can do because this place is so remote and there's no way for him to get off. So, uh, to get off, off of the island where he's staying. Sounds like the lighthouse. It's, it's a lot like the lighthouse, just with a, a lot more rage and cussing. 
<laughs> it's more like domestic style rage as opposed to poetic rage. Okay. Um, and then wouldn't you know it, while they're having a screaming match and uh, and the dad is yelling at him, he has a heart attack and dies. <laughs> so Elijah Wood is stuck in this house with the body of his dead father that they can't cart out because they're so remote. So he has to just sort of stay in this lodge for a couple days with the body of his dead father oh. and yell at the corpse and get drunk and just sort of be generally alone and pathetic. Then there's a scratching from the floorboards, and I'm going to let that stay. Um, <laughs> Boy, this sounds like a Whitney movie. It's it's, And it gets just, like, sicker and grosser from there. And what happens, twist after twist, there are other characters. Uh, Martin Donovan appears in the film, but I'm not going to tell you in what role. Needless to say... Is he the Joker? Pardon? He's the Joker, isn't he? He's not the Joker. Martin Donovan is not the Joker. Good. <laughs> There's no comic book connection I'm done, to this I'm movie. done with the Joker. I'd rather move on. Yeah, we, we, we saw two Jokers in the last six months. We're fine. Well, Joker um, actually isn't in Suicide Squad. It's like, like a cartoon representation yeah, at the beginning, yeah, yeah. but that's it. And presumably it's the uh, Jared Leto version. It would be the, the Jared Joker, Leto version, um, but the version that they show is actually the version from the cartoon. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. Whatevs. Um, anyway. But yeah, this is... Uh, I, I do appreciate a good film when it's really you know just nice and disgusting. This film is nice and disgusting. Uh, it, it just is so unbelievably toxic. And I've seen way too many films about young men who are trying to reconcile with their estranged dads and how there's... In the minds of a lot of young people, uh, a weird sort of poetry about reconciling with your father, because it means that you can relate one, uh, once again, you kind of bring each other together, and you complete this kind of family string, where you are now on the same level. Um, there's none of that kind of uh, weepy reconciliation. This kind of flies in the face of that notion about this this weepy cats-in-the-cradle romantic version of reconnecting with a parent. It's yeah. actually about how what you learn about your parents might reveal some kind of horrendous damage within you and how that's something you now have to start thinking about rather than it's the beginning of a new kind of trauma rather than the end of an old type. Yeah. And that I really appreciate Uh, all told within this film that is just crass and filthy and kind of horrible to watch. I love Elijah Wood's Mm. late era horror turn. Yeah, like the remake of Maniac. That's a, uh, I finally was, saw that, by the way. That's really good. <laughs> what was the name of and the I one love where the original was, Maniac, too. I think it is, the new version is just as good. It's really incredible. What was the one where it was the concert pianist being held hostage? Oh, Grand Piano. Grand Piano. That's yeah. more of like a Hitchcockian thriller, but that movie's great. Yeah. Nobody talks about it. It's written by the. Uh, it's written or co written by Damien Chazelle, who went on to do Whiplash and La La Land. And Elijah Wood plays a concert pianist mm-hmm. who, as he sits down to play his most complicated piece ever, in, in front of an audience of a thousand people. Yeah. yeah, he gets. He, there's like a he, message on. Well, uh, he has a metronome in his ear. I think no, it's no, a metronome. It's, or not, a, it's not a metronome. It's he has a, an earpiece. Anyway, no. What yeah. happens is he gets to the to the mm-hmm. piano and there's a note on the piano, which is there's an earpiece next to the sheet music. Put mm-hmm. it in, and that's when John Cusack reveals, "I'm a sniper, and if you <laughs> miss a note, I will shoot you." <laughs> it's so good. Mm-hmm. It's one of those ones like, how do you get a movie out of that? Mm-hmm. It turns out they got a really they great movie way, out yeah, of it. It's there's, really fun. There's a scene where he's able to get away from the piano, but for the most part, he's right there at the piano playing while the drama is playing it's itself so out. Yeah. It's such a great film. I wish so people had seen it. He, Stop what you're doing see Grand Piano. It's so good. Elijah Wood is, I think he's also a producer on this one. He's yeah. clearly interested in this kind of 
uh, he was also in a, a, a film I actually really hated called Cooties about a, a oh, zomb- zombie outbreak in a school. Yeah, it was just I, I, I thought that film was way too mean spirited, and, and I love you know a good cynical film. Well, we but, were just we were just talking about yeah. this. I think that one dances on the edge of too mean spirited, yeah. but mostly you can have a good time with it. I, I think it's told from the perspective of people who legitimately hate children and want to kill them. Well, so. I think that's I think that's true. Uh, have you ever seen Cooties? Cooties is a story yeah. about a bunch of elementary school teachers who get trapped in their school after a tainted batch of chicken nuggets yeah. turns. All of the kids the in kids school into, into man eating zombies. I hate cooties, but I, I admire yeah. that uh, Elijah Wood is trying to push the envelope in the genre. And he's trying to go to really wild places. I, I suspect he has really weird taste in horror movies. I and think it's fair to say, <laughs> given his choices, yeah. and, and this fits directly in line with that because it is a really caustic film that is really sort of confrontational about a really sappy cliche that I hate. So yeah, yeah it's really really terrific. Well, that sounds great. I'll check that mm. one out. All right. Well, tell me mm. about uh, and then they danced. Or and, something. and then we danced. And then we danced. And then we danced um, together. This is a, this is a film from the country of Georgia. Uh, it's a dance film, as the title would have you believe. It's about a young man and a young woman they are in a sort of a balkan dance troupe and they are focused on almost this kabuki style perfection of georgian dance uh, mm. the, the the georgian dance is a very traditional dance and it speaks a lot to the national character and if mm. you do it right and you do it per- perfectly you honor your country mm. and this takes place in the modern day and these people are really trying to sort of nail it they, i hope i get it i really hope i get it um and our lead character uh his ideal is suddenly interrupted by a rival Young, another young man comes in and they, they can dance a little bit better. He's taller. He's a little bit more handsome and they dance together. And it's sort of like they kind of start to resent each other. We pick up real fast that these two men are falling in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it. And it, their interplay becomes very flirty after a while. And they start spending more time and touching a lot more. And then of course, of. Uh, in a scene that is almost identical to, to the scene in Moonlight, all of the sexual tension is released. It's a little bit more explicit in this film, but, uh, yeah, all of a sudden we have this very physical relationship be- between these two people. They never declare that they are in love, but mm. they're at least, at the very least, in very intense lust. Right. And in a country as repressive as Georgia, where homosexuality is still decried openly in politics and in religion, uh, it, it's incredibly dangerous for them because they're in this situation where they are they are potentially going to reveal themselves through their dance mm. because their dance is all about their expression. And now there's this sort of question as to what function the dance serves. Are they going to do it because it's part of a grand tradition that speaks to national character? Or are they going to do it as a matter of per, uh, personal expression? Uh, the third act kind of falls apart. It actually f- pulls focus away from our two lead characters, the two men who are in love and starts dealing with like the lead character's brother and his previous partner and sort of their dramas and what they're getting into. I'm not exactly, well, they're just sort of artificially separated the two lovers and it's not about sort of their longing or how, you know, they, they have to sort of contend with how they're going to, you know, communicate or, you know, hide what they have. And, I think it becomes sort of more about their wider lives. And then there's a dance at the climax. As somebody who's seen a good number of queer romances, this feels pretty typical. It's actually kind of, generally speaking, a weak queer romance. Um, however, this film was made in Georgia. And in fact, if you look up sort of when and where this film came out, uh, this has caused a huge uproar in, in Georgia and in Russia. Uh, politicians have, come out, have spoken out against it in public. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, clergymen have told people to protest. There have been uh, a lot of protests of this film. It's been a really, really controversial thing, to to use a word I hate, controversial, <laughs> uh, in, in Russia and in Georgia. And although it's not the best queer romance, I would like you to encourage you to find it, to see it, to give it money. To support it. Ju- to support it, just to spite the repressive regime that's trying to keep it down. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so there's a lot. There's actually a, a deliberate politic at work in something like "And Then We Dance." But which if, is you, but, diff- but if, if but if I'm, if clear, as, as an audience member, if you're seeing it in a vacuum, it might seem like pretty typical, right? But, but context matters. Context does matter, and I think yeah. if if you understand where it's coming from and what it's currently doing in yeah. the world, just how radical it, this it, film yeah, is, it, it actually takes context. on a lot more weight, and, um, and and the drama actually becomes a little bit more more potent. But to be clear, you're not telling, and this is me clarifying mm. for my own sake, mm. you're not just telling people to see it just for political reasons. It's mm. also like, even though it's not a great queer romance, it mm. is an okay one. It's pretty good. It, it's an okay one. Yeah. Like, yeah you'll have a good time. It's like, well acted. The dancing okay. is really good. It, it, I always love uh, films that take place at like some sort of uh, school or like training facility because the I, we all can all relate to sort of that intensity of learning. Yeah. There's a great, um, oh God, what the mm. hell is it? Um, Hold on. One second. <laughs> You're looking something up here. Fell in love. There is a new anime series I've been mm-hmm. watching uh, called Science Fell in Love, So I Tried to Prove It. <laughs> that sounds like a giallo. I, doesn't, yeah. Isn't it a great title? It is about two scientists. This is their personality. They mm-hmm. love science. Mm-hmm. They love science, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And then at the first scene of the series... They they're just she's a couple minutes late and they talk about science for a minute and then she sits down and says by the way I think I'm in love with you and then he drops his granola bar and then credits <laughs> and then he says well what makes you think you're in love with me what's your evidence what's your what's your proof and she says well uh, my heart increase my heart rate increases when I'm around you okay well that's one element of physical proof. evidence sorry right, so yeah. the entire series is about them trying to prove mathematically what love actually is and one of the things that they test in like the first episode Episode, I only got one episode in is uh, the wall slam, which is the scene in a it's it's more of a comedy anime trip than anything else mm-hmm. where there's oh, a woman do. and she's like and like she's at, on a like next to a wall and the guy puts one arm on the wall as he talks oh, yeah, to her yeah, and yeah. gets kind of close uh-huh. and they try it like wall slam. Boom! And like, okay, her heart rate went up really, really great. That's awesome. But we tried it a hundred times, and if it was truly love, surely it would work every time, right? <laughs> no, we hit it. We hit neutral at about twenty. <laughs> And it's just it's That's a great funny, yeah. it's a great environment in which mm. to fall in love because these two people just don't get it. Mm. And there's like one assistant who's just like, of course the, you're doing it every time. What is why is it so hard? You like each other. Mm. And it's like, oh, we like each other. But can we prove we like each other? <laughs> it's great. I'm having a lot of fun with it. It's not an amazing series, but it's such strong yeah. characterization, such a great like locale that it really works. Yeah, so and then we dance is not an amazing film. It's it's good though. It's okay. still it's not like unwatchable or anything. It's actually quite sensitive, but um but yeah, it, it, it's just to, to somebody who lives in a country with regular access to queer films from all over mm-hmm. the world, it feels like been there, done that in a lot of ways. Yeah. But uh given that it comes from a place that doesn't go there or do that a lot then it does become kind of revolutionary. Right. Yeah. All right. And then uh, the last film that we're talking about is a film from Matthew Barney. 
So I'm just going to check Bonnie. out now. I'm just going to check out right now. I'm just going to have a little sleep. I'm going to play with some oh Vaseline and make a little sculpture out of it. We have to refrigerate the Vaseline first. I know I have to refrigerate the Vaseline first. And then Norman Mailer is going to come in here and tell you about the, the backstory of serial killer. These yeah. blimps are testicles. No, they were ovaries. Okay, well, the blimps were ovaries. Apologies, <laughs> Matthew Barney. The is opera an art. was testicles. Matthew Barney oh. is an art house filmmaker, and when well, we he's... think about art house filmmakers, and we like make fun of them. Hmm. We're thinking of Matthew Barney. He, he is literally an art house filmmaker because a lot of his films were made for a museum exhibition only. Uh, yeah. he, he's most famous for The Cremaster Cycle, which he made from the mid-90s through the early 2000s. It was five films made out of numerical order about creative potential. And, uh-huh. and, and also used, the human used, reproductive system. And the human reproductive system and how the cremaster muscle in the human body is sort of a symbol for artistic potential. And there's also Masonic imagery and Gary Gilmore and, and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. And, and lots of refrigerated Vaseline. Lot, that was his, his preferred medium of sculpture was refrigerated Vaseline. Uh, he did a film called Drawing Restraint 9, which was actually the ninth film in that series, or ninth installation in that series, where he tried to sort of explore how art can only come from restraint. The Drawing Restraint series started with performance art where he would like attach uh, paintbrushes to his hands or just hold paintbrushes and then sort of tether himself to the opposite wall and have to sort of like throw himself at the canvas in order to make anything. Or where he's dangling from the ceiling, that sort of thing. And then he ended up making a film, Drawing Restraint 9, which he made with his then-wife, Birk, uh, all about a Japanese whaling vessel and Japanese tea ceremonies and making a a Vaseline sculpture on the deck of a Japanese whaling vessel. It's who Whitney dreams of being. <laughs> Look, I respond to what I respond to. I think about this film. sometime. Like, uh, you know, like, I, there's this idea that film critics are all failed filmmakers. Hmm. That's not true. Um, but, you know, we no, have interest it's, it's, in it. And sometimes yeah. I see a movie and I'm just like, you know what? If I was a professional filmmaker, oh, this, this is the kind of thing I'd make. Oh. And I watch Matthew Barney's films, and I'm like, nope! <laughs> this is what Whitney would make. Perhaps. Uh, he, he, and I don't respond to everything. He did a, a short for a, a series of films called Destricted, where, uh, which was supposed to explore sexuality, and he filmed, took documentary footage, or no, he actually staged uh, some footage of uh, float carnival during in Rio de Janeiro during mm-hmm. Carnival, and they would zoom into the main float, and there's like a naked man tethered underneath there, and he's like humping parts of the machinery. <laughs> it's it's an hour and twenty minutes, and it is dull an as hour toast. And twenty yeah, minutes of that, oh and, and there's like yeah, there's like monkey corpses and feces. It's just so oh, gross. Uh, pass, pass, pass. So he doesn't always have me. Is my point? All right, um, that's fair. He uh, just came out with a recent film. It actually came out a couple of weeks ago, but and it's difficult to find. It's going to be difficult to find. So it took Whitney a bit, and we forgot. We actually forgot to talk about it. Talk last about week, it last so week. We're but I, I did want to talk about Redoubt, and uh, Redoubt is uh, something that is actually a little less heady than his previous films have been. He's been really sort of splashy with stuff like Cremaster 3. Okay. Or he's you know, going for all these like big, colorful, new aesthetics. What is that, and, a road trip comedy? Or? Well, it, it's it's a camping drama. Oh! Essentially. So Matthew what? Matthew Barney and, <laughs> and, an, and, a, and a woman whose name I forgot. Uh, I'll look it up. There's no dialogue, so the characters are not named. So Matthew Barney and his wife are living in a, a cabin and they've been spending their days essentially creating art. She presents him with a copper plate, a square copper plate. He kind of polishes it a little bit. He brings it out into the middle of the woods. 
he etches on it. There's no cast listed on IMDb <laughs> at all. It just says director yeah. Matthew Barney. Yeah. That's it. So, Ma- so Matthew Barney, he etches on it. He does like drawings and then he takes it back to his wife and she... Uh, through this complex chemical process that involves dipping it in chemicals and then electrifying it, manages to sort of warp and change the etching so it looks like these weird kind of organic uh, veins mm. and until it like starts to ch- change the very nature of what the drawing was, and then she buries it outside. And when she buries it, she touches the copper plate and reaches up to the heavens and communes with God. Meanwhile, Eleanor Bauer. Eleanor Bauer, who is who is an artist to her own right. Uh, she's a choreographer and a dancer. Oh, that the, Eleanor Bauer is not the wife then. Eleanor oh. Bauer. Eleanor Bauer plays Diana, the oh. goddess. Oh. And she and two constantly dancing uh, paramours, like her her sidekicks, mm. are hunting. They're traveling through the woods shooting animals and they're wearing modern day fatigues and they're carrying modern day weapons but they're ancient Greek deities uh, and the two sidekick characters are constantly uh, like prestidigitating and you know contorting their bodies they're contortionists and dancers and they're climbing up trees and they are actually reenacting through essentially mime the death of the animals that Diana is killing in the middle of the woods the Matthew Barney character and the Diana character run afoul of one another of the source of a couple of nights. The Matthew Barney character has a camera in the woods, films her. Uh, occasionally, they shoot the work he's working on and kind of warps it in this weird sort of way. And then the film's over. Uh, <laughs> after two hours and 14 minutes. I'm going to leave you with that. Okay. <laughs> I have nothing is, to add to that. It is a... Strangely restrained film for Matthew Barney, yeah. who I've seen be so like open and theatrical and strange. And you, if, if you've seen Cream Master Three, yeah, it's about you know, there's a se- uh, a sequence in Cream Master Three where Matthew Barney himself like has painted his whole body pink and he's wearing a gigantic pink headdress and these big fake teeth that look like they've been smashed out and he's wearing like a Scottish tartan and he has to climb the inside of the Guggenheim while he does battle with a cheetah woman and some real life punk bands and a real uh, artist who's doing Vaseline sculptures on the top level. You know, there's all this weird sort of theatricality going on, this kind of performative aspect. This feels more like Matthew Barney as he's drifting off to sleep outdoors, looking at the heavens. He's just sort of looking at infinity and pondering it in the way he does, which is bonding with metals, bonding with the animals, and understanding the way the goddesses, the capricious goddesses, take away life. And it's not as engaging as I had hoped. His films do move very, very slowly, although I do think he has a good sense as to what cinema is. I think he actually is a savvy filmmaker, although he wouldn't describe himself that way. And uh, I was sort of glad just to sort of be out in the freezing cold, communing with nature, understanding that when I got to the end, there wasn't going to be some sort of grand revelation. The film ends with a bunch of wolves trashing a trailer. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing changes. There's no big reveal. There's no redefinition as to their relationship. This is just one single two hour and 15 minute meditation on the things that are on Matthew Barney's mind. And I think he actually has some interesting thoughts, I think. 
It's kind of difficult to tell because he's so opaque. Whitney, I love you so much. <laughs> Not really. Do I, yeah. I, I, I? Sometimes I feel like maybe mm. I get this idea that I like make fun of you for like loving these <laughs> movies. That frankly, a lot of them leave me cold. Every once in a while, I'll see one of these mm. movies that you're really fond of, and I do get it. Mm. And sometimes I'm just like. I'm cool. <laughs> Thanks. And I, I I've think, long ago I given up on Matthew Barney. Like, I, I th- if I, and I think you would hate Ray Dallas. I, I just, I've fan. seen, I've um, seen most, if not all, of the Craymaster cycle, right. and I just, it did nothing for me. Mm. And I'm just not interested. And I think I'm the wrong person to discuss his work. I don't okay. think it's made for me at all, I, and I, I think, respect that. And I'm just, I'd stay right the hell out. I think Craymaster three. First of all, Craymaster three is not available on home video. Um, even if you're resourceful, you probably can't track down a bootleg. Yeah. Uh, rather famously, he made DVDs of the Cremaster cycle and put them in these gigantic boxes with glass, you know, glass boxes over them, and put a lot of art, mm. objet d'art around them, and put them in this like presented little and like auctioned them off for like forty thousand dollars a piece. That right. was the way to get the video of Cremaster three. Right. Right. Um, so, so, if, so if there's a bootleg, we can if, track down who did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty obvious. If, if, yeah. If, if you can see Cremaster three, first of all, that is definitely a bootleg. And uh, but I think it we is. Might show it at a museum again someday. Yeah. Ch- but, like, keep an eye out on the sure museums. They bring that. it back to theaters every ten years or so. So keep yeah, an eye I out. Remember, but, yeah. Um, they did. They did a revival screening yeah, like, um, a while ago. But I think that one is full of like sort of vivacity in life, and I'm kind of surprised. You can sit through something like Cremaster Three and not attach yourself to at least some of it. There's there's so much wild crap in that movie. I there's gonna be it, something that's interesting. I found it opaque. Well, yeah, that's I mean, my thing. There was yeah. nothing. There was nothing. It's a lot of like Masonic imagery and yeah. And I'm watching. I'm like, oh, I get it. it's Masonic imagery, and I'm ready to move on. Well, the the. Pro- the People like to bandy about the word pretentious, and I like to use the word pretentious as in pertaining to pretense, right. uh, in, in that you have to sort of have... The word has come to be known as, you know, unduly intellectual. Snobby, but, stuck yeah, up. Snobby, that, yeah. that's kind of, that's the dictionary definition now, but mm-hmm. um, if... But the original definition. The original definition, as in the root form, is that if you have to know a lot about something going in in order to appreciate it, that's pretense. Right, and, and that can be considered... Uh, uh, it's usually it's used as a pejorative, but I right. think that could also be merely descriptive. I would describe yeah. Avengers Endgame as a pretentious movie. I think you're right. If you don't already have a lot of affection for these characters from 21 previous films. And in a lot of awareness yeah. of their various storylines mm. to begin with, yeah, that movie's not going to hit you the same way. Exactly. They expect exactly. you like, to have information going like in. You can follow the story, you can understand the plight, but... Yeah. That film in particular banks on your the feel the gr- feelings you've grandfathered in from other films. Right. The difference um, between the difference I would argue is Avengers Endgame. Like mm. all the material you you need to see it is readily available. Mm. You go see Craymaster and just like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't read those three books <laughs> that <laughs> I didn't I know I say, needed to read. Craymaster three can accurately be described as pretentious because if you know about a lot about Irish mythology and the, the legend of Finn McCool and Finn McConnell. You know, if you, if you know about the actual details of what Masonic initiation rites entail and what they mean to the Masons, you know, if you know about the history of the Chrysler Building, you know, if you, <laughs> if you know about dentistry, and I'm not kidding about that, I know, then all of these things will land a little bit harder. You have to that's essentially... A, that's, a, that's an eclectic amount of information you have, you to have, expect the audience members to bring to with that. You have to be an eclectic intellect in order to approach Cremaster 3 from any kind of understanding level. Now, Which Cremaster is why 3, I don't write off the Cremaster movies. Yeah. I just say they're very specifically not made for they're me. They're very specific, but I'm watching this thing. I don't know a lot about Masonic initiation rites, but I'm right. watching Cremaster 3, and it made me want to know about mm. Masonic initiation rites because I found the film so visually interesting and, and just interestingly paced and fascinating and mysterious. Yeah, I just 
just I didn't um, it didn't make me interested. It just, it just re- me off. Redoubt is equally mysterious, but because it is so sedate mm. and it takes place out in the woods and it's just about sort of camping, I feel like I'm just spending a camping trip with Matthew Barney. If I was on a camping trip with Matthew Barney, I'd probably be like this, right? He wouldn't talk to me. <clears throat> He'd be etching on copper plates and wouldn't explain to me what he's doing. And I'd be Diana in the woods saying, what the... I'm going to start shooting at something soon. <laughs> so Redoubt is frustrating, but in because I expected it to be frustrating, I'm not upset. That's fine. I understand mm. that there's a level of expectation mm. that comes with it. So, um... On the critically acclaimed scale, we review films on a scale of C- minus to C+, plus, mm-hmm. uh, with C being average. Most movies are average. Yeah. C- minus is below average, which could be everything to, we simply don't recommend it to, the worst thing ever. Mm-hmm. C- plus is above average, which should be everything to, we simply recommend it to, the best thing ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you put Redoubt? A Redoubt is a C. Okay. Yeah, it's not, not Matthew Barney's A material, as it were. All right, uh, where do you put And mm-hmm. Then We Dance? And Then We Danced is also a C. But I recommend you see it. All right. What about uh, so? Come wait to a Daddy. Minute. So it's like a high C. It's then. like a high C. Yeah. Okay. So like right. it's it's not a, right. not not great film, but yeah, see it. Yeah, okay. See it. Yeah. That's your call. You get to. I didn't see it. If you uh, want to make a political point, definitely see it. Yeah. All right. Uh, come to Daddy. Come to Daddy. Of uh, also a high C. It, it's not not a classic. It's not going to go on uh, you know my list of the best or anything. But it's a notable very caustic horror film that I think a certain type of horror fan will attach themselves to. Uh, The Lodge? I get to review one. Um, (laughs) The Lodge, I think, is the kind of art house horror movie that shows Mm. that art house is not by itself... A compliment. <laughs> a compliment. Like it's it's got ambition. It's got really well photographed. It's, it's yeah. well photographed. It's certainly got good performances in it. It's got ideas, mm. but I don't think it lands because I think it fails one of the most fundamental aspects mm. of the horror genre, which is finding the perspective from which the film is the most immediate and mm. intense and scary. And I think by failing to do that, they do the film a disservice. I also think, although I didn't mention this in the rest of the review, I also think they telegraph the twists too much as a result because if you ask yourself why am I not seeing that and it turns out the reason why is because blank Mm. so that's totally fair I I think it fails basic construction but Mm. it's clearly a work of filmmakers with big ideas who I just think this one didn't work so I'm gonna give it a C minus alright I I give it another high C Uh, I I thought just high C I I liked it more than that uh Okay, I'll give it a C plus. You don't have to. Uh, I just I'm impression you like it more. Than I'm, that. I'm on the line between C, uh, uh, C and C plus. Um, I, no, I think it actually is about something very pertinent, and I think the performances uh, play it out very well. I've seen this type of material in some really shitty films, and I think this one actually nails it, mm-hmm. and that was a relief. Okay, mm. uh, and then Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous mm. Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. Mm. Uh, a C with an asterisk. Okay, I, we'll I, revisit I, this one. Somewhere. Yeah, I, I recognize that there's. Something good going on here, even though I'm not picking up on it personally. Uh, I'm giving this one a huge C+. Mm. This is not only the first great movie I've seen this year. This has rocketed up my list of my favorite superhero movies, even though it's mostly about supervillains. It's got character galore. Uh, it's got really awesome action sequences that don't feel like they just sprang from a computer's hard drive as they rendered a bunch of shit. It looks like actually mm-hmm. good action, well-choreographed, exciting action sequences. Um, and it is from a fresh perspective. And not only a fresh perspective of the characters, but the movie feels like it 
emerged from a different tradition of cinema. Hmm. I love this movie, and I really, really am glad that I saw it, and I really hope it finds an even bigger audience than it's getting right now, because I think this is the kind of movie where whether it's a hit right now or not, it's going to inspire people down the road, so it's, it's check gonna, it out now, because this yeah. this might this has the potential to be a pop culture linchpin whether or not it's a hit. Look at something like Blade mm-hmm. Runner, mm-hmm. where it wasn't a hit when it came out, but everyone afterwards was just like, oh shit, we gotta do that. <laughs> we gotta make movies that look like that. We gotta make movies that feel like Birds of Prey. I think. Mm. Um, so that's it. That's critically acclaimed. Uh, we'll be back really, really soon because we're going to do an uh, Oscars recap, which will be as long as it needs to be. If it's, we just do twenty minutes and like they got everything right for once. <laughs> Goodbye, folks. <laughs> well, they already haven't gotten anything right. No, I don't think they have. Uh, but we'll have that as well. Uh, well, we'll all, all of the women nominated for Best Director can attest to that. Yeah, we, yeah. Uh, but uh, in addition to uh, our Oscars recap in a day or two, uh, we're going to be having a, a, our next proper critically acclaimed episode is going to have reviews of Fantasy Island, the horror movie. Uh, but, but, the f- but based on the TV series. Yeah. Like, actually based on the TV series. I guess the banana splits was not a fluke. <laughs> I guess we're just doing this now. I look forward to Knight Rider, but the car kills you. Uh, we got the photograph. The, the Brady is, Crunch. Uh, we got the photograph is coming mm. up as well, uh, and possibly others. Mm. Uh, it's actually it's a really busy Valentine's Day weekend. Yeah, and we're going to see what we can get to because yeah. there's a lot to get to. But also, you know, we're both married, so we might have stuff to do on Valentine's Day. <laughs> we're not necessarily going to go to a bunch of movies, yeah, so we'll yeah. do the best we can. Mm. We'll do the best we can. Uh, but also, stick around to Critically Acclaimed Network. Uh, we have new episodes of Cancelled Too Soon. Uh, we just did uh, Masquerade, which is a forgotten spy series from the 1980s with all-star casts. Uh, next up, we've got Hammer House of Horrors, which is a horror anthology series from uh, the great horror studio that brought you the horror of Dracula and, and mm. Frankenstein created woman and a ton of other uh, really, really wonderful horror movies. Yeah. Um, and we got, we've got mail. You can always email us letters at critically acclaimed.net. If you want to ask us questions, challenge our reviews, ask us for recommendations, just ask us off the wall stuff, whatever you want. That podcast is all yours. Uh, we've got our upcoming Star Wars podcast, Episode Zero. We've decided that our first episode of that, if you want to watch along, some people have asked us to announce it, we're going to be watching the original 1930s Flash Gordon serials. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about those films and how they influenced the Star Wars that uh, people currently love, whether or not they've ever seen Flash Gordon. So that'll be a, a hoot as well. And also we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at Whitney, Bi- uh, I'm at Whitney Bibiani. You're, you're Whitney now? No, oh, I'm, no. Okay. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm, I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, if you want to purchase a copy of Love at Nana, which is a 30-minute audio drama that I wrote and directed, then hit me up on any of the social medias. I'm on the Twitters and on the Instagrams. And, uh, yeah, I can email you an MP3. Uh, mm-hmm. It's 10 bucks, and it uh, stars some very talented actresses. Also, if you, want, uh, if you want that and a ton of other exclusives, you can head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Our top-tier contributors uh, get... Uh, original commentary tracks by me and Whitney. They get Google Hangouts. They also get all of Whitney's audio dramas at no extra cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at various tiers below that, we have bonus podcasts in which Whitney and I review every single nominee for Best Picture and Oscars history in chronological order. We have a podcast where we review every single episode of Star Trek in production order. Uh, we have the Cancel Too Soon monthly movie, which I think we pretty much decided we're going to spend the entire year looking at Disney TV movies that are not on Disney+. Plus. <laughs> Just looking at Disney erasure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you can also vote for future episodes as well. It's a ton of stuff. So thank you everybody for listening. And never forget, everyone's a critic. I want to go to the
I'm sorry, what? 